it was always part of the plan to put a brewery in, but for many years it, it was just a plan. It's 100% acquisition of Green Beacon. No, we had a chat with everybody. Anyone would have seen this coming a mile away. It's the passion and the, the dedication to beer and brewing. Oh, yeah. That's super simple and direct question. It's always fun to get to speak about beer. Hi, I'm Brews News Editor Matt Kirkegaard, and that's just what we're to do, talk about beer. With a focus on contract brewing and its modern incarnation, smart brewing, this week, as I chat with brewer Brian Watson. A recurring theme on Beer as a Conversation is the evolution of the modern brewing industry and what we can learn from some of the people who pioneered that industry and have also kept pace with the changes that have taken place in beer styles, consumer preferences, and also technology and business models. With that in mind, this is a fascinating conversation. After starting his brewing career with DB in New Zealand, Brian has worked around the world pioneering such early craft brands as Sananu, founded early contractor brewer Australian Independent Breweries, he's worked for DME, he founded Good George Brewing in New Zealand, and is also the president of Smart Brew, a business that enables just about any venue to ferment beer on-site without necessarily being a brewery. Or is it a brewery? We talk a lot about that in this conversation. It's a great chat with a fascinating brewing entrepreneur, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Brian Watson, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. G'day, Matt. How you go? I'm actually surprised, as I find myself saying a lot these days, that we haven't had you on the podcast before, um, because I can't think of too many people that I know that have been brewing in the craft space for longer than you have. <laughs> does that does that mean I'm getting <laughs> old in years? Young in mind, though, Matt. No, well, no, see, I, I can get away with saying that because as I've come to realise, I started writing about beer. It wasn't my first career. So by the time I started, I was never a young beer writer. So uh, by the time I started writing, all of these people that had been long-standing st- brewers had been around. It turns out that they're all younger than I am. Okay, <laughs> so I'm right. certainly not calling you old, but but you are experienced. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so maybe maybe tell us because I've given a bit of an intro to what you're doing now. But maybe you know you got started in the brewing industry before there was a craft brewing industry to really speak of, and I particularly in in Australia and New Zealand, and I really trace that back to the late '90s you know, 2000 period. So how did you come to be involved in brewing? Uh, look, I, you know, I'm going way back, Matt. I was a, um, a brewer at DB. I was very fortunate to see a job advertised in the New Zealand Herald for a trainee brewer at Dominion Breweries. And everyone I knew who had a degree in either um, science or engineering or food technology applied for it. And bloody hell, I was the one that got the job. Was that like a miracle? So what led you to that point? Did you have a, a science degree? Oh, yeah, I had, we, yeah, I had a background. Yeah. I had a science degree. Basically, strong and, and believe it or not, uh, freshwater ecology uh, and uh, biology. So, yeah, strong strong biology degree and, and with a bit of chemistry and everything thrown in as well. So I actually do get to, you know, one of probably the few people that do get to use my degree on a quite irregular basis. You know, when you're talking about organic chemistry and you're looking to try and, you know, about water chemistry and you're trying to, Look at microbiology as well. All of that. I studied at university, but yeah, you know, this is a few years ago now. Um, but you know, I had that science background and um, was actually looking at doing something along the lines of teaching. And so while I was uh, doing Camp America in the US, I applied to be a teacher college. And while I was waiting to hear back from that, I saw this job come up as a trainee brewer at Dominion Breweries, and I thought, 
Shit, I'll give that a go. <laughs> so, so, so brewing got in the way of a potential science teaching career. Yes, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and boy, I never looked back. So, it, you know, it was, um, it was a, 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 a fantastic experience, a fantastic opportunity to train properly. So spending, you know, three months in starting the laboratory, then three months in um, the brew house, three months in, in fermentation, three months in packaging, three months in trade quality, installing beer lines, that kind of stuff. Um, then I went down to uh, be the head brewer from Monteith down on the West Coast. And you know, they, they, back in that day, they had 30-odd staff down there and uh, was the number one beer on the coast. So it was uh, that was a hell of an experience. This conversation is going to go all over the place. We'll probably need to do three episodes <laughs> uh, just to, to cover all of this. But it's, it is interesting to hear you talk about that introduction to brewing because we have seen the explosion of craft breweries and the number of you know people getting their start in small breweries. But working in the big breweries, you do get that opportunity to really round out your skills and understand the full business, don't you? Absolutely. You, you get what I would call classical, classically trained. So you are, you're sitting in exams, you are studying to, you know, all of the all, all of the disciplines from, you know, right through from, you know, the, the diseases of the hot plant and malting technology right through to, you know, beer in a glass and what affects the glass. So right across the broad spectrum of everything to do with brewing. So it was a, it was a fantastic opportunity to be able to, I, I guess, learn from the very best people in the industry, which was awesome. Doing what I regularly do when I'm interviewing somebody and I'm uh, checking out your LinkedIn profile and, you know, I think a lot of people over-egg their LinkedIn profiles these days, but <laughs> there's a lot that I know just from knowing you uh, isn't there. So maybe just name check a few of the breweries that you've worked at over, over oh, the course of your career. Geez. Yeah, look, I've I, I, I worked with a, a heap of great people over the years. So, you know, um, from Alistair Hook, who started and sold Meantime Brewery uh, when I was in London to working, you know, with some great people in, in Sydney. And when I started, you know, the first what then was the first uh, true contract brewery in Australia, uh, which was then Australian Independent Brewers. Which is Brewers. the Australian Independent Brewers, yeah. 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 Um, and then, you know, and I've, I've, I've fortunately worked with DME for a number of years and worked with some great people such as Jerry Mitchell from Four Pies, Richard Watkins, Brendan Varis, um, you know, the, the Mountain Goat Boys, Dave and Cam from Mountain Goat, all working on um, working with them, setting up their breweries and, and having a great old time doing it as well. You know, th those are thoroughly enjoyable. You know, even, uh, you know, places like, which was a lot smaller than then, um, Scotty uh, up at Bolter, you know, when doing yeah. that, you know, that was fun. And he was like, they had some big plans. And I was thinking, cool, this would be great if it works out. Look out. It did, didn't it? Yeah. You didn't have shares? No, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no I was... It's interesting that even in sort of reeling off that list of, of names, you know, one of the things that's always struck me about your career is it's been – Entrepreneurial is, is, is the way I describe it. You, you've, you've always been entrepreneurial in your uh, uh, approach to your career. You know, you, you've started a lot of businesses. You've uh, pioneered a lot of um, approaches. It was interesting to hear that you founded Australian Independent Brewers. I hadn't realised that. I mm. just thought you'd uh, worked for them. No, 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 no. I was one of the uh, – the idea that I had was when I was, had St. Anu was we needed another contract brewer. We were working with Bruce Peachy at Blue Tongue in those days, and, and you know, I walked in there – First week in November, and so I said, Bruce, I need a thousand kegs of, of Pilsner. And he goes, I'll give you 150. And we're like, you know, so that's like coming in November, December, 
we're like, oh, we need a bit more security. So that's when I thought, okay, there's an opportunity here for a, a true contract brewery in the Australian market. And um, yeah. I'm just going to put a pin in there because Sananu was one of the ones I was hoping you would bring up uh, when we started. Let's step back before AIB so we're not going back into time because I, I remember, I mean, that would have been oh, 95. When, when did you found Sananu? Uh, 1999, because I, I I know that. 99, I know, okay. Because I, I, my, my son was born the week we took over the, the place, and so with his photos of a, a one-week-old doing the first bruise beside me, um, and um, <laughs> that was in Ponsonby Road in Auckland. Um, and then we, we ran that for about two years, and then uh, we came over to Australia. Um, I brought my family over. I had, a, 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 I think it's a three-year-old and a one-year-old at the time. And uh, and then I now I have an Australian daughter as well who was born over there. And her brothers do not let her forget that she is an Australian. Um, <laughs> and um, and so we moved over with St. Anu and then and grew that around um, the Australian market. Again, it was very much we were relying on other people's uh, ability and, the, you know, the great um, skills that they had and allowing us to work with them to make make beer. So tell us about the beer market then, because I do remember the Sananu Pilsner, which yeah. I remember very fondly. It was a beautiful beer um, in its day. And I, again, from memory, it was just that lightly fragrant, but nicely bittered. Um, was it a New World Pilsner? A New World Pilsner with, with Kiwi Hops, but of course, uh, yep. Pacific Jade and Mochiweka. Even going back, it wasn't called Mochiweka okay. in those days. It was called Visas in those days. Yep. Um, but yeah, so um, yeah, I think it, it took out, uh, trophy for champion New Zealand uh, champion Australian Pilsner at one point, and uh, it, it, look, it, it was it, it went really well. Always difficult. We were running, I think, four different breweries in three different states, trying to um, trying to keep the wheels turning. Uh, from from you know, geez, we we were uh, at Blue Tongue, of course. We were at the original brewery in um, Dandenong, which was. It became the garage for Matilda Bay. Matilda Bay, that's Is right. That... You know, Brad and I were both, Brad Rogers and I were both brewing out of there. And Stockade Brew, I think it was. Stockade, yeah. Yep. yep. Um, and then uh, Five Islands down there with Tim down at Five Islands. And uh, yeah, so everywhere we'd go, we're like just trying to keep, you know, trying to get enough beer. So this is what obviously we realised there was not, there was the opportunity to be able to set up a, a, a truly independent contract brewery. So that's why I left St. Anu. Was to start this because I needed that independence, that 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 ability for customers to see that actually no one was getting any favours, everyone was going to be treated equal. Yeah. So, what was the insight? You know, what led you to start the the Sonano Brewery in, in those days? Because it was that was well before there was a there was a path that had been blazed by people such as yourself. So, you know, you you were breaking new ground. You might have had the lessons of Chuck Hahn and some of those people. Uh, before you and uh... well, this is even you know, I mean, yeah, nineteen ninety nine in New Zealand. So even in Auckland, there was only really Keith Galbraith and Cock and Bull that were doing good things, uh, and there was uh, one other in Auckland, um, Shakespeare Brewery. So very few breweries mm-hmm. around. So basically, <laughs> the insight was I was with my DME. So I've set up you know a number of breweries around the world uh, with DME. I think close to seventy, and. Um, and then I was doing one in um, in Cork, and I on the way back I squat the DME guys, and they said, "Listen, the market is not there yet in Australia. So how about you know you go off and do your own thing?" And um, so I got I landed back home, 
and uh, my wife met me at the airport. She said, um, hey, guess what? I'm pregnant. And I said, great, guess what? I've got no job. So it was a, <laughs> it was a bit of an oh shit moment. And it really, I guess, it's a kick up, kick up the bum you need to be able to do it. So DME was excellent, really liked, looked after me and helping me get a brewery in. And then we set up and I had some, some uh, write a business plan, raised some funds, and uh, we got that business going uh, within nine months. So there was no real insight, mate. It was just like, let's do this because I could see, because I've been working in the UK, I'd seen the emergence of craft breweries and I, I knew where it was going. It's interesting you say the UK, not the US, because most people look to the US for their lead to, to, to getting involved in uh, the modern craft scene anyway. Yeah, look, I worked really closely with Alistair. And where was that? Because he hadn't, Alistair hadn't set up meantime at that stage. No, there was a Freedom Brewing Company before that. So then, yeah, so then okay. Alistair, then I moved to Dublin and set up the Irish Brewing Company, which was the first craft brewery in Ireland. Um, so years ago, all of the all the breweries were were were, um, were bought out by uh, by the big boys. And so uh, in 1995, we set up the first craft brewery uh, just outside Dublin, and uh, the Porterhouse opened the same week as we did, which is still going, the Porterhouse, um, right in the heart of Temple Bar. So, you know, it was, Alistair was passionate about, or still is passionate about craft beer. And I, that, a lot of that rubbed off onto me. And so I was pretty excited about the opportunity to come back to New Zealand and bring some of that. And also in Kiwi, New Zealanders are, are probably a lot, and certainly have been a lot more like Englishmen than, than, than Americans in the past. And were quite constrained and reserved in their tastes back then, nine ninety five. So you wouldn't be, you, know, you wouldn't want to be throwing in a double IPA because people would go, "What?" Didn't mind the price. So what happened to? Because I, I, I remember the beer. I remember it fondly. People were talking about it. It was getting ranged importantly at the time. It was getting taps um, in really interesting bars. Um, you know, mainstream pubs were were putting it on, but it sounded like, you know even though I wasn't deeply enmeshed in the industry then, it sounded like there was trouble getting the beer um, for you, not for the pubs. Yeah, oh, look, yeah, when we started at AIB, we kind of solved that problem, but it was still hard. You would still walk in. I walked into, you know, this, the big pub, Coogee Bay Hotel, and I said, listen, mate, we've got this bloody craft beer stuff. He goes, listen, mate, this craft beer gig will never take off. It's just a fad. You know, by the way, how much is your beer? I said, 180 bucks a keg. He said, what? I can get the world's best beer for that. I said, well, what's that? He goes, Heineken. So it was bloody hard work to be able to convince publicans who had been spoon-fed by the big breweries for years and given you know hundreds of thousands of dollars for taps to be able to jump on this, what they perceived to be a, a fad, and, which was craft brewing. But that's the same story that we're hearing now. Um, publicans, you know, I, I sometimes and check my um, logic or check my opinion here with your experience. But a, a lot of small brewers point to the big brewers as being the enemy when quite often it's the publicans who have a business model that they work to. Yeah. And uh, to some extent, they have the whip hand, particularly as we're seeing pub chains growing, you know, they have a lot of power to negotiate with the two big brewers about things like rebates. And yep. that sounds like that makes it hard for the for the small brewers as opposed to the big guys necessarily targeting them. Yeah, look, I, I think, and we, we're seeing that here as well. Um, obviously, the big guys have got a lot, lots more money to be able to throw at pubs and there's lots of ways to do it as well. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, the Commerce Commission, I believe, has been involved, but found out there was no real 
there was there might have been a lot of smoke, but there was no real fire. And um, so you're always up against it from the big guys. But I, you know, I, I sense that there is a lot of publicans that are embracing craft um, and realizing mm. that yet yeah, the, the all of the craft brewers don't have the money to be able to contribute to taps. Um, but some of them are, and some of them do. Um, and those are the ones that have been able to. I know it's just a, that it's that um, that ever increasing circle. If you can get more beer, then you can get more money to fund taps and you get more beer and then, you know, and on it goes. Conversely, you can go the other way as well, you know. It's one of those things that I'm constantly flip-flopping in my own head about because what you're describing is the cycle of business. Bigger businesses tend to have a little bit more of an advantage. They've got more resources. They can do some of the things that small businesses can't do. They can have programs like the one that got you trained. Um, You know, if you're a small two-person operation, you don't have a lab to go do three months and you don't have the sort of quality control people to go do the the, the taps and things like that. And that's one of the advantages, um, including financial muscle in trade, is one of the advantages that the bigger brewers have. Yeah, that... They do. They can guarantee the quality as you know, as most of us can do as well. But they've got that next level of of, of automation. Therefore, they've got the scalability to be able to drive the price up. They can be much more competitive as well. Um, you know, it is a level playing field in terms of excise. Um, but you know, they are they're, they're really good at what they do. They really are, and they've been doing it for decades. Yeah. Um, you know, and and you know, we love the we love the big breweries. You know, I'm 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 on the New Zealand Brewers Guild, and they're members, and yes. man, they contribute a massive amount. Not you know, not just in the membership fees, of course, which is we all we all do, but in the, in the skill that they bring, the quality of the people that they bring into the board, uh, their services they've got available to them, and, and like they are fantastic partners to have in terms of as an industry. And I guess that's uh, just in my world, that's where they've got all these advantages. But you know, with every opportunity, there's a cost. So they've got the advantages that come with size. But to some extent, they also want to claim the notion of being small uh, at, at the same time, so, <laughs> which to me, that's where the challenge comes in. You know, not, not wanting to define craft or independence or anything like that, but they also appreciate the uh, value of looking small. Oh yeah, yeah. Like that, you know, um, I think when uh, when we first started Good George ten years ago, you know, we had our over our door was head office Hamilton, not Tokyo, and it was a real dig at the at the big guys because obviously they bought you know they bought places small breweries and um, you know and, and actually people aren't aware that you know they're pretty much owned by multi multinational um, corporates, so. Um, they they need the craft space because that's where the innovation is and that's where the growth is as well and that's where the margins are for them yeah for for them um and yeah. but and that's the thing it sounds you know i keep going back to the early 2000s when the craft beer movement was described as a revolution you know which carries with it all of it you know there's a philosophy behind it and there's a you know a, you know manifesto behind what the craft beer movement is but as the market's evolved, big versus small sounds like it's more about marketing than it is about, you know, uh, that, you know, manifesto, or that, you know, philosophy. Uh, it's always been about marketing. You know, you, you go back to forever. It's all about the ability to, to be able to market a beer because we've got a marketing budget that we don't have. So it's about marketing. 
everything is, you know, it's about the brand. Isn't but for it? small people as well, you know, because yeah. it, it sounds like you're not philosophically opposed to the big brewers, and oh, you know, not you, you're not you're not picketing outside their shop saying you're not small, but you're still happy to put a sign up above your door saying head office here, not Japan. <laughs> you've because got to have a go. That's good marketing. You? Yeah, you've got to have you've got to have a go. You know, uh, you've got to be a little bit cheeky from time to time. So. Yeah, like we we no, we, we certainly embrace what they bring to the industry. The great thing about they're not driving the price out of the beer. It's not it's not the lowest you can go. They want to maintain margin as much as we do. They want to mm. keep the prices and 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 beer high, which is great for everybody. If they were sitting there selling one hundred and twenty dollar kegs of VB, we'd all be worried. How does that work then when the supermarkets come in that are probably much more about price point <laughs> I'm, I, I, and I appreciate the sensitivities here I'm happy to take a no comment and move on if, if it's... no look oh, you know supermarkets definitely have their place that you know I, I've worked with Woolworths for seven or eight nine years so and create a lot of beers for them and actually some good people within the supermarkets but they've got a profit to make and that's mm. and they're going to return on their the investment from their shareholders so they've got to make money and the way they're going to do that is by getting as much margin from products. So they might get take less from the big brewers because um, you're treating as a loss leader, but they'll take more out of craft. So over here, mm. you know, they can they can be demanding up to thirty percent from for craft. But what about when they enter with their own products? You know, with with contract brewing, you know, in just about any successful <laughs> category, they bring their own products in almost to frame where they want the price to be. Uh, look, you <laughs> again. Um, so I've designed, <laughs> like I've designed a lot of those products for them, um, from yep. the, uh, the John Boston range to the, the Zyphos range. And, and it's interesting in Australia, it's quite different in New Zealand. They don't do it in New Zealand. So I actually don't know why, um, but, but there is, you know, they don't make their own beer over here. Does the market um, need a certain scale to do that? New Zealand just is that on the small side of scale? No, we're tiny. No one cares about us down here, you know? <laughs> So, you know, Woolworths has got big, big fish to fry in Australia. Yes, they're in New Zealand, but I guess they just haven't seen the need. You know, they are, they've got some pretty wicked craft facings and stores, probably don't see the need to be able to, to be able to drive the cost out because they actually want to keep the cost high. Tell us about, you know, the arc with AIB. How long did you stay in Australian independent uh, brewers? Probably about two and a half years. So, so when, we, when I started the business, um, the idea was we, we had a couple of contracts, which was St. Anu and a couple of others, and we thought, right, you know, we'll be, uh, it was me and uh, uh, a guy called Leon Mickelson. I'm sure you come across Leon. Um, I have. Yep. So Leon and I were, were kind of the first guys. He's, he's a, obviously a good Kiwi, Kiwi boy. And uh, we were in there. We were doing, there's three of us. We were doing everything. We were brewing. We had a, we, we had a nice brewery. We had a DME 50 hec brewery. We had 100 and, 100, 200 hec tanks. And we had a, um, an Alpha Tech bottling line, which was, you know, three to 4,000 uh, bottles per hour. Um, and then, you know, we were doing everything, doing 5,000 cases a month and life was good. Everything was going good. And then something happened and it went crazy. So we basically went from within nine months, the business plan was to do 20,000 cases of beer in year five per month. That was the business plan. We were doing 32,000 cases a month in month nine. So it was. So I what year was yeah. this? Sorry. Sorry, this would be two thousand and five. Okay, right. So, so that was when five years after Little Creatures had launched, we started to see. Like, I think you were making yeah. beer for the Snowy Mountains Brewing exactly, Company. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So all those people just came out of the woodwork. So that was uh, so beer awards when we judge beer awards in May, 
in May we started. By the following February, we were doing 32,000 cases of beer a month, working seven, six and a half days a week. The packaging line, 24 hours a day, was running. So I thought I knew how to run a brewery before then. Man, I, I learned the hard way how to run a brewery. Jeez, there's some, there's a lot can go wrong in brewing, eh? <laughs> <laughs> and so I actually, when I left, um, and it, it, actually it was my wife that pulled the plug after about, uh, after me sleeping at the brewery on, you know, many multiple occasions, she said, this is ridiculous, you know? So she pulled the plug, she said, nah, nah, this is, you, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna fall over here. And um, we, you know, we were, we had, you got two arms, two legs, you're hired. So we went through, you know, so many staff. We were in Norellan, of course. So, um, you know, the the, the, um, the staffing was a challenge always. So getting good people was, it still is, it's always a challenge. And, um, but during that 30,000, 32,000 cases a month, you are, if there's no room forever in terms of you have something go wrong, you're like, it, it just, it just, everything just mm-hmm. snowballs. So um, I had some good guys, you know, Dave Bruff and, 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 um, and Leon, and, and we had a really good core team that worked really well together. So yeah, I did that for about two years and then thought, no, this is, this is too much. Sold my shares back to my business partner and said, mate, and then a, guy, a couple of guys came in and took it over and um, I came back to Zealand at that point then. So the start of, that was 2007. A lot of people talk, you know, you do hear the curse of success sometimes, where sometimes when people enter the brewing industry, particularly thinking the worst thing is not selling enough beer. Mm. But again, you know, speaking to um, even Bernie Power, um, he was too successful too quickly as well. And yeah. it, it creates its own set of problems. Oh, my goodness. So I, I, was, I learned a lot from it. I was determined to learn a lot from it. So I developed a, a, you know, a 15-page, sorry, 15-point thing, basically that all of the shit can go wrong in a brewery, the major stuff. And then obviously had plans around how to make sure it stopped. So I, I, I put all that into place while I was there and things were going pretty well, but that I could take that away with me and, and be able to then, everything I did from then on, I could structure SOP, standard operating procedures, I could structure my micro program. I, I could actually, you know, plan out what was going to happen before it would happen. So had a really much better, learned a lot and made me much better as a brewer. These are tough questions that exercise my mind. I don't mean to uh, to lay them at your feet specifically, but contract brewing is a great way for businesses to scale and you know test ideas and develop brands. You know, early market before they build their own brewery before they make that commitment. It is the downside of contract brewing that you know anyone can have a crack at it. Um, you know, no matter what their idea and no matter how badly thought out it is, they can just order, you know, uh, put in an order, you know, run it and have no care and responsibility, you know, for, for as I see it, nurturing the industry. They've just got an idea. No, you, you're absolutely right. Um, and, you know, you always receive a bit of bit of criticism. Luckily, I mean, I, I know a lot of people in the industry, but you know, it was always a, it was a good-natured ribbing, like, geez, Watson, what are you doing? You made it too easy for people to get into brewing. It's really hard, you know. Um, but what wasn't getting any brewing because a lot of them they do their twelve thousand cases, uh, you know, twelve hundred cases of beer and never come back. So they actually <laughs> realised actually it was a bit harder. Um, a lot of the recipes mm. I do. So yeah, it was interesting because I, you know, I'll give you one good example. I um, there was a, a brewery and I can use some names, eh? Byron Bay. There was a there was a brewery in Byron Bay and the owner of that was a, a very successful man and he rang me 
uh, on a random Tuesday night and just tore into me. Basically, he sent one of his guys out to the line to pick up a case of beer fresh off the line. And he's sitting there comparing that case of beer to a beer which was 10 months old. And he's saying, and he's just, you have, you know, he was just tearing me. You've got, you're an idiot. You've got no idea what you're doing. This piss doesn't taste like the last batch. I don't know what, you know, and really, tore, and the, the fact that you used the word piss really got up my goat. <laughs> you know, and then, and then and I said, listen, mate, you can't compare a beer which is 10 months old to a beer. And also, fresh off the line, it will undergo bottle shock. And in a week's time, it'll taste quite different. Bullshit, mate. I've been drinking piss all my whole life. You don't know what you're talking about. Anyway, about a week later, phone rang. Exactly seven days. It must be Tuesday nights. Must be his calling people. Brian, I will never doubt you again. You're absolutely <laughs> right. You know, but yeah, this is the kind of shit you have to deal with in a contract brewery. You know, it, it must be really. You know, I feel really sick for Sunny out at um, uh, where I see now in Goulburn. You know, the, the the stuff that he has to deal with in terms of customers who are right in their own minds. You know, it's a, it's a, it's not a fun customers business. Customers always right, Brian. I know, I know. But it's not, a, <laughs> man, it's not a business that I would want to get into again, I can tell you. Yeah. It's hard. Okay, again, I, I love the industry. I'm very supportive of it. But then you do see these points where there is no right and wrong. If, if somebody wants to start a brand, they should, they, they should be able to. But as I like to think, you know, every opportunity has a cost, every strength is a weakness, there is that duality of it. And we're seeing that a little bit at the moment with, um, you know, the excitement around alcohol-free beer, which is a really great category. It's really valuable and it's uh, you know, great for us beyond being good for the industry because of what it is. But at the same time, the technical requirements of making uh, alcohol-free beer mean that contract brewing is... Uh, the, the way that most people have to get into. And so we are seeing, I, I think we saw 65 trademarks in the beer space. Wow, in the last, really? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's to me, it's a good example of where I, I'm sure the industry moderates itself in the end, but in the early days, it could be a little bit the Wild West. Yeah, look, you know, there's some, there's some good contract breweries. I mean, you know, some of those guys out um, in Goulburn do a great job. I'll tell you, you know, and John Salton at... Um, uh, Brick Lane, mm. they, they do a fantastic job, and, and particularly with those um, low alcohol beers, which are really hard to make, really hard mm. to make, really hard to get that flavor, get that character without either tasting wurty or tasting thin. So really hard to do. And these guys are actually, they're doing a good job, which actually is good for all of us because it's making people yeah. come more to beer, you know? So, um, and they are making good beer, which means the industry then is better for it because beer is better. And, you know, I've judged these in the Australian Beer Awards for a number of years. And we've seen the improvement in quality in the beer. So it's a, it's a can be a good thing. Not It's not all bad, you know. Oh, no, and, and again, I, I would hate to come across that way because it is such a positive contribution to the industry as well. And, you know, the, the contract brewers are by and large brand agnostic. They're there to provide a service. And, you know, it's, it, it, it's up to the brand and the idea that comes to them. Um, what was the point of making? But, you know, it, I was just sort of wondering how you felt about that. You know, does it facilitate sometimes, um, you know, the over-fulfillment of consumer demand that may not already exist? Well, I think you said it earlier on, like it is a very, very competitive market. And you've got people coming in who don't know about beer, and, but they do know about marketing. And, you know, marketing is, as Douglas Myers would say, he's the guy that founded Lion, it's 90% marketing, it's 10% about the beer, you know? Yep. We, of course, in craft, big to differ. 
Um, but still, it's very important the marketing side. But so you've got good marketers coming in, making good beer, then they're going to be yep. successful. And you know, and they understand that it's not. It's about not only marketing, but it's distribution, and it's about quality. But that's you know where it comes to because to me there are so many good beers out there that you know when you say it's ten percent about the beer, obviously by and large the beer has to be a, a, you know, a certain merchantable quality. Course, quality. Yeah, yeah, but with yeah. so many great beers out there, you could have you know half a dozen identical beers, and quite often the one that wins is the one that markets best. Yeah, um, that's right. You, so you can't discount the marketing. Yeah, no, the marketing marketing is incredibly important. Um, but you know the the. I think the 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 people that are doing this, the great thing about contract brewers is they won't make bad beer. Generally, there's not going to be faulty. It's not going to have dice toll. It's going to be generally. It might you know generally everything will be technically pretty close to perfect. So I think that's a good thing because people that come to craft don't want to be put off by drinking rubbish. And as I said, you know, but we are seeing a mig a significant increase in the quality of the beer. We've just judged the New Zealand Beer Awards two weeks ago, and the quality of the beer is phenomenal. It's really, really good. You know, 10 years ago, mate, there was an infection, and there was diacetyl, and there was, oh, my God, there was just so many faults. You know, you, you kind of, you'd be, you know, I would say 30% of the beers were significantly faulted, whereas now we're, that that's a very much a rarity. The quality of brewing has gotten much better. You know, we, we, we have seen for the number of um, breweries that are open, but I hear very mixed, you know, reviews about some of the modern beer styles. So as a, you know, as, as a brewer of certain experience, <laughs> yeah. where do you sit? You know, I, I caught up with BV, who, you, who, who yeah. you've worked with. Um, yeah. And, you know, as he said, look, you know, uh, some of the hazies are very popular, but then from a classical <laughs> Yep. stylistic judging point of view, a lot of them, you know, are, are you know, objectively faulty um, to, to get the flavours that consumers seem to find, find appealing. Where do you stand on that? You know, is, is it a fault or is it a feature for some of these beers? Oh, look, that, that's, it's actually surprisingly, and uh, uh, within the scale guidelines by the, um, the Brewers Association, it's quite a, it's quite a well-defined category, it's particularly the hazies. And, you know, it is hard to make a good hazy. It really is. Um, and because, you know, just, just having a beer that it's hazy that is not filtered is not a hazy. You know, it's about getting that hopping through the, through the time frame, getting that biotransformation, getting that, that, that retaining that hop aroma, which is very easily lost, and then be able to get in that nice, soft juiciness to the palate is hard. And so mm. there are some beers, anecdotally speaking, some people, you know, around the industry, there are some beers that are pretty average in terms of that hazy because everyone just thinks that they're really easy to make. Oh, great, don't have to filter it, you know? But that's where, and funnily enough, where, where the market, having said you need a beer of a certain quality, that's where some of the marketing can come in that, you know, consumers who don't have, if you've grown up drinking lager, you've got a very good idea of what a lager should be. Um, some of the styles that are coming out now are very new and consumers don't really have an idea of what to expect but if you try a beer that is backed by excitement, um, that may not be backed by some of the qualities that you're talking about, does that have the ability to skew a consumer's palate, um, you know, and, and, and their acceptance of beers that might otherwise not meet a judge's approval, for example? People are becoming more browsers. They're not necessarily buying, you know, a, a case of beer these days. They might buy a can of beer 
for a bottle of beer and a six pack here and a six pack there and try they'll try lots and lots of beers beers that aren't good that don't resonate with the public you know they won't buy them again so they might have yeah. a can a can of beer and don't forget how hard it is to put beer into a can it's really hard you know dissolved oxygen levels have to be really really low you've got to get everything right and um including really good equipment so you know getting they might try a beer, try a beer, try a beer, try a beer, but they'll only go back to one or two of them potentially. And that a beer that's maybe not great will get found out sooner or later, I would suggest. There's always a really good marketing story behind that that just goes the other way to prove me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> one of the other th- in innovations you've been involved in is a smart brew system. And you know, I, I want to be careful not to run a, uh, a, a, a an ad for you. Um, but tell us, <laughs> yeah. but it, it, it's, it, it is an interesting model for, uh, you know, a modern brew pub that uh, I, 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 I can't remember the number, but there was a, a huge number that you're putting into the US. Yeah, look, we, we've got 85 customers now. Um, so 85 breweries um, that we're supplying mm. basically fresh high gravity wit to. So, so talk us through, but before we go in, yeah, so, so tell us what the smart brew system is. Well, it's basically an automated fermentation system. So fully automated. So Peter Toombs, the owner of DME, came to me about 10 years ago and said, listen, I'll, you know, I want to, DME is, 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 you know, world's leading, at that point, the world's leading brewing equipment supplier. But um, they felt that they were, they were missing something. They wanted to be able to have an ongoing relationship with their customers rather than just hear from them. And then one of bigger tanks. So he so he found a, um, someone that supplied malt extract, and um, so he's applying um, putting tanks into to a couple of pubs in, in the Maritimes um, over in eastern Canada. And he said, "Look, I want you to come in. What do you think?" And I said, "No, nah, never worked. Don't like it." Um, he said, "Well, what what do you need to make it work?" And I said, "It needs fresh, great beer, world class beer, and needs to be automated because I've seen some of these people. I've owned." A, a restaurant. I've seen some of the people, and I don't want some of those my kitchen hands making the beer. So took a look, took a while. So the first thing we had to do is obviously because ninety percent of all brewing issues are hygiene related, generally from the heat exchanger. So so I um, first thing we designed is how to obviously clean itself, and then focus on the quality of the wort. So looked around the world, uh, looked at a lot of wort suppliers, looked at different concentrations of the wort. Um, so so if if, if, if Beer wort in a normal brewery is uh, is made around twelve to eighteen plato or bricks. Um, I looked at twelve, eighteen, twenty four, thirty, thirty five, forty, sixty, and eighty is malt extract, and that's when it really turns to really a thick trickly custard. So I worked all the way back and then just picked the number and I looked at, I looked at fermentation fermented them simultaneously. In a, in, a, a, um, in, a, in a brewery and looked at them and found that, um, you know, the one that I wanted, that gave me the best quality of beer. So that, that turned out to be really good. And then, um, so now basically we've got, you know, there's, um, I think, 13 in Australia um, and 85 in the US and growing like really fast. Um, we're launching into Europe. I've got a call at five in the morning with Europe um, into Japan and, um it's about giving people any hospitality venue the ability to be able to make their own beer, but make good beer. We guarantee the quality of the beer. So if it's no good, we need to know, and then they don't pay for it. I'm just thinking of one of the you know those Coopers home brew the the um, yeah. machines that you will sit at the average home that you you buy all the ingredients from Coopers, put it in, and it's 
basically, a, a, you know, so long as you are reasonably clean or, you know, a, very clean, you're going to get a known quality of, of, of beer out at the end. Is that what, what you're doing, but written much larger? Oh, it pretty much. That, that, it's a US 5 and 10 barrel, 15 barrel systems. So, yep. yes, and, and the, it's in a bag and box, and I've got half a dozen work streams, which you can mix, which we, I mix and match. I do all the recipes. So we do it every – we've done uh, you know, 5 million litres of beer in the last three years on SmartPro mm. around the world and uh, have won a lot of medals, a lot of local competitions as well. Um, so uh, it does it, – it, you know, it is, it is guaranteed the quality of the beer. But the main thing is, Matt, it, 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 we guarantee the hygiene of it, and that's, that's half the battle. So basically, you can run it from your iPhone. How do you guarantee the hygiene in situ? Because, you know, as, if they're not doing the cleaning re- regime, everything can go ugly pretty quickly. They can't start a brew until they've cleaned it. So they can, yep. and we can see it online. We can see what's going on. Yep. And, you know, uh, if, we, if we were to refund people that have had bad beer in the last six, five years, I would say, I don't know, from what I know, less than 10. And that's because something's happened. Yep. The, the other thing I just picked up from what you were saying was you've won awards all around the world. And I'm wondering, uh, not integrity isn't the right word, but if, if you guys are making the word and you know that it's award-winning word and then you're sending it to an automated machine, um, you know, it, 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 is that like me buying par-baked bread rolls and putting them in my oven and then entering those as Matt Kierkegaard's bread rolls. Um, no, I'm, I'm just interested. Yeah, no, because have you thought about it as contract brewing? So contract brewer, right? So mm. contract brewer, you want mm. an award. So Matt goes yep. to um, John Selton and says, I want Matt's beer. This is how I want it to taste and describes it. And Matt makes it as you want it. You win the beer awards. Who wins the medal? Well, that's and that's where it's because uh, I think in New Zealand, was it New Zealand that you had the um, contract brew manufacturers the, the awards, award, yeah, yeah. yeah, manufacturers award, um, as opposed to. Yeah, but you look at so you um, look at who who just won, um, you know, uh, Garage Project and uh, Behemoth won the the best medium size, best large brewery. Most of their beers is all contract brewed. Yep. So interesting. Yeah. Um, but but actually, it's more than that because they they tell me what they want. They design it. They add the hops. They choose the hops that they want. They, you, they, we work together to give them the right yeast that they want. They dry hop it at the right time. They add the findings. They may be kegging it off or they may not. So they are actually actually doing something rather than just pushing a button. The only thing that's pushed a button is really the cleaning. So what is the selling point then for a venue to do that over and above you know, buying a keg of beer that you've done all of the work for and you've just delivered the full keg to them? What, what, what is the marketing pitch for them to install this, uh, I'd imagine, more expensive system? Because they can, but basically they can make their own beer to whatever they want. So they, I, haven't been, I haven't been challenged enough yet to not, we're, I'm releasing a hazy work uh, in the next two weeks. So, you know, have, the, the ability to be able to make whatever the beer they want for their customers. So, you know, and you, you wouldn't believe that the, the biggest selling beer in the world I've got at the moment is a peanut butter porter. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why. Given you know that th- they can tweak them, but surely they could just buy the ready-made beer and cut out all of the cleaning and all of the, uh, you know, not, even though it's automated, there would be a little bit of headache in the um, 
in in the system, wouldn't there? What's what's the advantage to them over just buying in kegs of the the, the same beer that you've made without any of that fuss? Oh, it's a theatre of it. So they've got a brewery there. Yeah. And and people, uh, you know, they go to the brewery, they see the tanks, they see the guys, you know, making the beer, adding the hops in, putting the wort in, and it's it's part of that experience. And then they can cater beers for for their customers at, at a much smaller much smaller level. So you know, ten kegs or a beer, they can do a half. You know, we do even go down to three and a half barrel, which is you know eight kegs of a beer of whatever they want, from a double IPA to a. You know, there's been some weird requests for beer, I can tell you. So, but <laughs> you know, um, but it's also really good for someone such as, for example, Four Pints. They've got yeah, they've got one up in um, Gold Coast, and they, they just make weird and wonderful stuff. So they they might they do a, a I think last one they did was, was a mango passion fruit pomegranate sour. Uh, milkshake sour you know what i mean so yeah. they you know they they've got that creativity within themselves so they just you know so i'll send them the recipe and they'll go up and do it and they might change a few things as they do it but it's really about them doing the creative stuff i'm just here facilitating i, I hadn't realized that four pines had it because i would have thought they would have had all of that technical uh, uh, ability in-house it, it's about having a brewery on site that they can do stuff specifically for that site so it yep. differentiates that site from from anybody else around that's got four pints beer on, for them. And I've got we've got breweries, full mash brewers in the US are using the system as well for exactly the same reason. Yeah, yep. yeah, and, and that's where it's interesting because they're full mash breweries. I'm, yep. I'm I'm surprised that they couldn't just put a 500 liter kit in, given they've got the the, the skills in house. Yeah, look, it's hard. Like you know, making beer is hard, and so to be able to try and do that in someone else's venue. When we've already cracked it, we've been doing it for almost 10 years. So we just made it easy for everybody to do it. So there's, yep. there's some quite big breweries in the US that are, that are starting to roll it, increase their footprint in pubs. And you talked about pubs in their own pubs that they're just making on, they're making the same beer as their mother brand just for that pub. And that gives them that ability because in a brewery, we've got limited capacity, right? And limited ability course, to be yeah. able to limited ability to be able to do seasonal beers. I know in my brewery, you know, we're running in capacity now. So, you know, when people start telling me, oh, you know, I need another 100 hex of a certain beer, we're like, oh, how the hell are we going to do that? But if you've got a little brewery off-site, you can do whatever you want. And it makes gives that um, the brewers the little chance to be creative. So, you know, the brewers are, are signed. So I work with the brewers to go, you know, this is what I want. I've made one of these before. I want to match the specifications from this product. Okay, cool. So let's work together on it. So it's a really collaborative approach. Yeah, I know. And look again, it's it, it's one of those things that there's clearly a need for, and uh, you know, th- there are a couple in Brisbane where I live, and I've been to a couple uh, you know, elsewhere in the country, and they're places. I, I I love how you say theatre because there is a theatre in drinking in the shadow of the stainless steel. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it, I I think of the debate that's taking place in the spirits industry where a lot of craft distillers are buying in ethanol that they essentially flavor on site is 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 that a similar no because you're actually doing the work you, you know you, you're actually yep. fermenting the beer you know all the things that, that happen that you've got the, all the things to do with making the beer and you're creating beer at the end of the day you're not just buying yep. something else in and you're just flavoring it up you're actually buying it in with a design already designed do you know what i mean it would be like buying yep. in five different types of gin blending together they're adding your own kind of gin and they make it really special you know it's kind of that next level so yeah yeah because it was something that we grappled with we created a database of all of the physical breweries in the country because 
we'd seen so many numbers quoted about how many breweries there are and you know if, if you're including contract brands or gypsy brands or you know nomad brands whatever you want to call them uh, as we've established you know sometimes they they can fax through one order or you know create one order um yeah. the social media account never goes away so you can never actually tell when the business discontinues but when you've got a physical brewery that a for lease sign goes up one day you know that it's yeah, not yeah. there anymore yeah, uh, yeah. kind of thing so when, when we tried to do a head count and you know you had to be a stainless steel owning brewery we came up against you know the idea of um you know the fermentoriums you know smart brew or you know th- then there are a number of brewers who are getting their work made elsewhere and then fermenting it is that a brewery and, and that was one of the discussions that we had to have in-house um and you know it, it almost is a subcategory of brewing where it's a fermentorium what, what's your take on that and, and again none of this is judgmental it's just trying to work out how we define the the the, the process over the last five six years i've seen uh, all the arguments but i also have spoken to a lot of top brewers top brewmasters particularly in australia mm. mates of mine who've said what a bloody genius idea can i put my word yeah. in there you know can, yeah. can i put my word through this and you can tell the people, I have a theory in brewing, the more you know, they realise there's, there's no secrets. The less you know, you realize, you think what you're doing is really special and everyone else is an idiot. So that's kind of a, <laughs> you know, it's a working theory. I've been proven pretty right on a, a lot of occasions. But, you know, um, you know, going back a few hundred years, all breweries had, had malting, they, they malted their own malt. Yep. And so, you know, you weren't, you weren't a brewery unless you'd malted your own malt. So like, what are mm. you talking about? Especially back in Germany. So then when you got some of these big malts that started and collaborated and then they sold malt, the same situation. You can't be a brewery. You're not making your own malt. So it just was just taken to the next level. Yeah. So what, what's next for Smart Brew? It sounds like it's, it's fairly busy and it sounds like as, you know, the, the, the industry becomes increasingly crowded. And I, I think we have talked about the, um, the, the, the model where a lot of breweries are looking to have their own taps and open their own venues, which is something you've done with Good George that we haven't even had the chance to touch on and may not get yeah. to this uh, yeah. conversation. But um, having the smart brew system sounds like it would be a, a great way for venues that don't necessarily want to employ a brewer. You know, in, or do you need to employ a brewer? Or I like to have a brewer. I like to have people with a bit of brewing there because I can yep. work with them. They know what they want to do and they're passionate right. about care. You know what I mean? But you don't need to be a full-time brewer. You could be someone who just really loves beer and's really done a, you know, done a lot of home brewing um, and then but can work on the bar. And therefore, you're the best person to be able to sell the beer as well. So, yeah, for, even for Good George, we, you know, we're looking at, at, at different, further away, you know, we've got the 12 bars around us and we, we, we ship tank beer to them now. Um, but any further than that, we will, we, you know, we would definitely be doing Smart Bruce because we're just, you know, doing the, it's the next extension of growing the brand. Is this the logical extension of craft? You know, in an incredibly crowded market, the startup costs for a brewery are exorbitant. You know, yeah. is this a way of achieving the same result, but in a you know less risky, less capital intensive way, or is it, or or is it just as risky and capital intensive? No, it's that's a third of the capital um, and a lot less risky. Right. We guarantee the quality of the beer. Was guaranteed. Yep. So if you don't if you don't buy it, you don't pay for it. So um, and then what it does is increase your footprint. 
So you don't need a big bar. Um, you know, look at you know the one at Four Pines is tiny. The brewery is tiny, yep. but it, you know it, it, it serves on site. They do weird and wacky, wonderful beers, which people want to come in for, um, which is different from the from the Four Pines range. Um, yep. And and so even for us, if we were doing a you know we'd go outside of the top half of North Island. We would do, do a brew pub in Wellington, for example. We would definitely put a smart brew in there because it would make perfect sense. We're not you know yep. because we we've got a limited you know, ability to be able to make it here in the brewery in, in Hamilton, but to be able to do whatever we wanted down there would be really cool. And, uh, you know, we'd obviously have the opportunity to be able to send our brewers down to be able to do whatever they want. Do you think consumers want the flavour? Because it sounds like you can do just about everything you can with yeah. the, the Smart Brew. Are, are they in there for the flavour or are they in there for the story behind the beer? Um, oh. It comes down to flavour, doesn't it? it or does comes it have down to be to... romantic enough to satisfy them? Yeah, if the beer is good enough. Yeah, look, the, the, the if, if you're drinking a nice hazy beer or a nice pilsner or a good double IPA, and you're in the brewery, you just feel better about life. I think anyway, basically, <laughs> do you know you're you're close to the source. You're as close as you can yeah. possibly get. You know, and you know it's come straight out of that tank there. Then that that's what that's what it's about. You know, and we all. You know, us and breweries, we, we're trying our beer and a bright beer going, oh, my God, that's so good. You know, then you're trying a can two months later in a summer and you think, oh. you know, it's like it, it, it's it's best as beer is best fresh and close to the source as possible is, is what that's about as well. Mate, look, I, as I said, this is probably going to be a chat that has to take place over two or three uh, episodes and we're coming up to an hour. So we might bring this one to a close. But uh, no doubt, you know, Good George is a whole other chat, as I said, and there's a whole lot of else I'd love to talk to you about. So, Brian Watson, thank you for joining us for this fascinating conversation about beer. And uh, I, I do hope to be in New Zealand fairly soon, so maybe we can do uh, part two, you know, on, on your side of the ditch. Mate, I'll see you in Birvana. Looking forward to it. Okay, cheers. And that was Brian Watson. I would really love to hear your thoughts on this one. There are so many interesting points that Brian raised. If you'd like to share them with the classic, please don't quote me on this, but you can email me at matt at brewsnews.com.au or you can join the public conversation on the best discussion group on the internet, the Radio Brews News Facebook group. To join our Facebook group, just search for Radio Brews News in Facebook and use the password Soapbox. If you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out by sponsoring the show. Give us a few dollars each week to help us make the show possible. You can review us on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcasting service, and that lets other people find us as well. Or you can email us at producer at brewsnews.com.au to share your thoughts. 